Hello, you're listening to WMMT 88.7, and we are live for Mountain Talk Monday today. I am your host, Kelly Haywood, and I am really happy to be joined by the Rising Center, and the representative uh, is actually the director of the Rising Center, and her name is Holly Combs, and we're going to be talking today about April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and it's something that we don't hear enough of. It seems to be a taboo topic to discuss, but it really shouldn't be, um, as you'll see so many of us are affected by this topic and it's something that needs to be addressed and we need to figure it out as a community and the wonderful thing is our community is working to figure it out with programs that the rising center offers so i would like to welcome our guest holly combs hello holly hello thank you so much for having me here Uh i appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk about what we can offer great great and um So tell us a little bit about what is the Rising Center. Okay. The Rising Center is one of the 13 designated rape crisis centers in the state of Kentucky. Um, We are funded partially through funds that are um, provided through the state, and some of that comes through an organization called KSAP, which is Kentucky Association of Sexual Assault Programs. So they kind of oversee us, and we collaborate with them on the services we provide. Um, We provide comprehensive services to survivors of sexual assault. And what I mean by that is it isn't just one thing. They can come to us and access advocacy as well as counseling. Um, And it's not just for one group of people. Those services are offered for all age ranges, all genders. And our goal really, ultimately, is not just to offer these services to survivors, but also to try to be a voice of change against this problem that is sexual assault. Okay. One of the things that when I I used to be a middle school teacher and we had some trainings um, around warning signs to look for in our students, actually, um, just to be on the lookout. And I wondered, well, why are we being so focused on this? And then they gave us the statistics. And then it was one in three girls would be sexually before they turned 18. One in three. That's tremendous. And then as I started working more in reproductive health, I realized one in six women will be raped. And that's a huge number. It is. And and what's even more shocking about that is that we, the number we've been using is kind of lately one in four. But what we found out, some new studies have just come out within the past few months, new statistics that show us that one in like 48%, which is basically one in two women in the state of Kentucky will experience some kind of sexual assault in their lifetime. And a way that I explain that to people, I have a six and a half month old at home. And when I think about, you know, she's starting her journey in this world. And if she lives in this state and grows up in this state, she has a 48% chance of experiencing some kind of sexual violence in her life. And that's, it's just horrific as a parent. Um, and I think a lot of us know somebody who has had this happen to them. Whether or not they've disclosed it or come out, it's, it's just there. A lot more pervasive in our community than we might think that it is. Yeah. I mean, when I, I posted about this show earlier on my Facebook page just to hopefully bring awareness that we were going to have the show and so that people could listen and learn. And when I was posting, I realized, so how many women are on my friends list? And of this list, how many of them fall into this category? And I knew that it was more than a handful. And to me, that's shocking. I have three daughters. So I have three children. They're all girls. And it doesn't only happen to girls. That's uh, another thing that everyone focuses on. Um, But it doesn't only happen to girls. It happens to men and boys as well. Mm -hmm. So we definitely need to bring awareness to that. Um, while it happens to girls in greater numbers, it's still no less of a thing. Um, but even at that, just being a parent of a child and knowing that you're bringing them forward in that situation, and it doesn't matter how good of a home you provide with those statistics. No. So what are we doing to help this problem right now? Like, What can we do? 
I think one of the biggest things that we need to do as a community is really fight against a culture of rape. And I know that sounds radical to say that, but we have in this nation, in this state, and even in our communities, some perceptions that kind of perpetuate the, the, the things that happen and the inaction that occurs. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of victim blaming. Anytime you hear someone has come forward with an assault, there's a lot of questions about what was she wearing and what was she doing and where was she at and those kinds of things that kind of put the blame in the wrong place. It is never a survivor's fault that this happens to them. Um, One of the programs we actually have at the Rising Center is called the Green Dot Program, and it's one of the things that I'm really excited about. Mm -hmm. It's a prevention program where we go out into the schools. Right now, we are only working in not in Owsley County, but of course, the plan is to extend that. It's a bystander program, which means that they are teaching students that sometimes inaction can be action. If you're sitting in the hallway and you see somebody being bullied or somebody telling a joke that's very inappropriate and you do nothing, you're still kind of reinforcing that that's okay. So it's teaching them things that they can do. Sometimes it's just walking away. It's as simple as calling that person out or just leaving the room, letting them know it's not something you want to see or hear. Um, Of course, there are instances when you need to take action. You need to let somebody know that something is going on or you even kind of want to maybe approach that person and just kind of offer support. But it I think it's important for us to realize that not just not just teenagers are bystanders, but sometimes we are too. There are things that we hear around us that we kind of don't intervene in or don't so, say anything about that perpetuate some of the thoughts that are behind this action. Um, we at the Rising Center offer a lot of direct services to survivors in terms of counseling and advocacy that are really beneficial to them, but there's a community calling here too. There are things that we need to be doing to really try to fight this problem that is right around us staring us in the face. Um, Something that you mentioned is that this happens to men too, Mm -hmm. and you were totally on point with that. The stats we have right now are 20% of men in the state of Kentucky will experience, again, some kind of sexual violence in their lifetime. But we also know that sometimes, and a lot of the time, men don't report it even less than women report it. So we might have a stat that says 20%, but we don't really know if that accurately reflects how how much it actually happens in the population. It's probably a lot more than that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of things that kind of go into that. Um, sometimes it's just kind of the way the man perceives that, that it's they feel kind of it's, it's weakness to even acknowledge that it's happened when it's not. You know, we, we really encourage them to know that it does happen to them. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that you can do kind of sad to say this, that can prevent that from happening. It is something that could happen to any of us. And from that perspective, we really need to be willing to listen to someone and not to judge them, not to blame them, but advocate for them. Mm -hmm. I wonder, and I can't, and I'm just wondering this right now, but we also, I believe, have a culture of body shaming. Yes. Where we cannot talk about the parts of our body that are the parts that are assaulted um, or the types of behaviors that um, can be misconstrued as assault or even um, not, <laughs> you know, I mean, in the reverse. And I think it makes a really blurry kind of gray area of did this actually happen to me or am I just weird or um, do I talk about it because will that then become an embarrassment to me or um like you said how was she dressed um where was she at what was he or she doing at the time you know um wondering putting that guilt back on ourselves you know being that we are feeling people you know um i wonder if if that culture of body shaming and silence around sexuality and silence around even the functioning the basic functioning of our bodies creates the environment where a lot of these things can be discussed 
and I agree wholeheartedly. And and I don't know if that's just limited to this area or if it's other places, but that's absolutely something we see where, you know, whenever you're brought up in a home where you can't talk about sex or you can't talk about any of those kinds of things, how are you supposed to come out and tell somebody that this happened to you mm-hmm. whenever you can't even think about saying the words that you need to say to bring it out? Mm-hmm. Um, and there absolutely is a lot of... It's natural for us when we go through something to try to regain control. And sometimes part of that is questioning, what could I have done to prevent it? And what we always encourage survivors to think about is this issue of consent. If you're feeling that way about it, if you're kind of questioning, you know, I I know that I really didn't say this was okay, then it wasn't okay. You did not ask for it to happen. Um, And the law supports that. If somebody is intoxicated, they don't have the ability to give consent. And, and I think there are a lot of issues like what you're talking about that do prevent people from even recognizing that that did happen to them because they, they kind of want to feel responsible even when they weren't. Mm-hmm. And that absolutely is a barrier to them being able to come forward and talking about it. Right. And um, so I do want to, if anyone is listening with young children in the car, um, be aware that we are talking about the topic of sexual assault. And so at some points, we may use some terms that you may want to explain to your child, or you can also choose um, to turn down or turn on some music. But um, any choice is okay. And um I do think that when we are ready to talk about this topic with our children, that it is something worthy of a discussion for their age level. And with that said, um, I would like to ask you, we're talking about what is sexual violence? What is sexual assault? What is classified as assault? Because it's not always intercourse, right? That's, That's correct. So how do we define sexual assault? The way we define it in terms of if we offer services is any time that any kind of touching, any kind of interaction that has happened of a sexual nature that has been against your consent or you were not able to consent to counts as sexual assault. Um, we, we also include in that definition sexual harassment, meaning sometimes it's just words and things that are said that has an impact on a person. It has the same kind of traumatic impact of someone's, you know, kind of coming on to you or making inappropriate comments that really just kind of offends you on a very personal level. That can also be a form of, you know, sexual harassment. Um, So really to answer your question, it's lots of different things. And of course, when we think of rape, there are certain kinds of you know, very specific definitions for that. But there are lots of other behaviors that can account or that can count as sexual assault that are just as impactful as an actual rape. Um, And that can even be just certain kinds of touching that are absolutely unwanted. Um, I'm trying to talk about this in a way that's not too graphic because I know we're on air here. But it's just important to get to the point of consent. Mm -hmm. That's what we really use to define. If something has happened that you did not consent to or were not able to, then that counts within that definition of assault. Mm -hmm. And another thing, you know, I used to work in an environment, well, I worked at McDonald's when um, I was a young person. And in that environment, when you've got a lot of teenagers together working long hours, you know, sometimes boundaries of, like you said, just touching um, can be misconstrued. And there were times, you know, when I would see a guy pinch a girl even on the arm, Yeah. you know, and it was basic flirting. But, you know, I, I, and I've seen it happen at school, yeah. you know, times when... The, this flirting turns into someone in tears or someone really upset or someone getting hit um, because it goes beyond what the person is comfortable with. Um, so if you're someone who, you know, has feelings for someone or wants to flirt, how do you know when enough's enough? Well, and I think part of that is we need to communicate better. I think we just assume, and some of that is cultural. We have a lot of indirect communication here in Southeast Kentucky. Mm -hmm. We kind of assume things. We don't really ask. We don't really directly talk about things. And we need to get in the practice of doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, 
and I get back to consent a lot. You're going to hear me talk about that so much, but it's just Mm -hmm. vital. We don't really ask if it's okay. We just kind of assume that it is, and that's not okay. We really need to get in the habit of having a conversation and being more aware of nonverbals. If I were to come and stand really close to you, even if I'm not touching you, if I'm really paying attention, I can tell if you're comfortable with that or not because you're going to either kind of push away from me, you're going to close your body posture. There are things that if we're noticing, we're going to know if somebody is being receptive to our advances or not. And a lot of times I think that could be picked up on before any touching happens at all. If they're just paying attention to how close they're getting to you. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing because it's different for each of us. My nephew, his personal space bubble doesn't exist. He can be right on top of you and he's perfectly fine with that. Not everybody's that way. We have to teach him that. Like, you cannot just go up to that lady at Walmart and be standing on top of her. (laughs) Right. You have to kind of respect that people have a personal space bubble. And you can tell when you're getting into that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think think it's really just about communication and us paying attention to how somebody is responding to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that, that we know about trauma, too, is that sometimes it doesn't take a lot. If someone has experienced this before their personal space bubble is a lot less than somebody else's. So even just a brush, if they brush up against somebody in the grocery aisle, that might be really triggering for them and it might kind of be, you know, it might cause some really significant symptoms for them. Whereas me or you were just like, oh, it's okay, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't matter that you bumped into me. Um, so that's something that can happen sometimes. You were mentioning that sometimes just a pinch or just a touch can lead to tears. And sometimes that might even be what's going on. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, so we just have to be, we have to be a lot more aware. Mm-hmm. Self-aware, yeah. it sounds like. Um, and when we're approaching somebody thinking in terms of being gentle and kind, um, what kind of space would you like to have? Yeah. Um, and then try to return that to others. But um, so we, we talk about consent, and you brought up um, the issue of intoxication. And um, one of the things that I think really keeps a lot of people from reporting things that happen is maybe also illegal drug use or being drunk and not wanting to have to put that into the picture Mm -hmm. um, and protecting themselves because of that when the protection needs to come from the assault. Um, So what would you say to someone who intoxication was a factor in their assault? They are not going to get any judgment from us. And I probably need to talk a little bit about the kinds of things that we offer because we we can come out... um, in different ways. Sometimes mm-hmm. somebody reports for therapy and then it, they kind of come up that they've had a history. So we might come and see them and see if they need some ongoing individual counseling with us. Sometimes we also show up in the emergency rooms in the hospitals where someone is coming after an assault. It's confidential. Us coming out and talking to them is just like any kind of medical record in that what they say to us stays with us. As an adult, you have the right to choose if you want to let law enforcement know or not that it's happened. You can just come forward and get evidence collected. You have 90 days to decide if you want that reported to law enforcement, if you want it to go anywhere from there. Um, So it's important for them to know that they're not going to get any judgment from us because it does not matter if you are intoxicated, if what you were wearing, where you were at, what you were doing, you do not ask for this to happen to you. It is something that happens to you. Um, there's there's kind of a little, there's this video and you can Google it on YouTube. And we use it a lot when we're talking to people about what consent means. And it's talking about how if I were to come up to you and I were to ask if you wanted a cup of tea. Well, if I go make the tea and I come back and you're passed out, I'm not going to feed you the tea, right? I'm not going to ask you to drink it or get you to drink it because you can't drink tea at that point. And it's kind of making a connection there between if you can't consent to drink the tea, you can't consent for that to happen either. Um, And it's not something that we are, it's not a part of our assessment of what's going on. We are there to focus on how that assault has impacted you and what you need, what support you need to try to move forward. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's a big thing that keeps people from being able to say what's happened. 
but it doesn't need to be something that holds them back because it's not something that we're going to pay attention to. We are there to support them there in that moment and figure out what they need from us to kind of move past it. So um, one thing that came to mind while you were talking was even if they don't decide to pursue this with law enforcement, they can still receive services from the Rising Center? And what kind of services would that be? Absolutely. We, when we come out the first time, most of the time it's an advocate or a volunteer, and they will come out and just kind of offer them support. Usually that happens in the hospital. So they kind of let them know what their choices are at that moment, whether or not to have the rape or safe kit, as we call it now, done, whether or not to let law enforcement know. And then they fill out a referral form that they bring back to the Rising Center. And then we follow up and see what kinds of services they need. Do they need somebody? You know, Are they wanting to press charges or even think about it? Then we would do some legal advocacy to let them know what their options would be and kind of help them make a really informed decision. The counseling is a really big piece of this because even after all of that other stuff is done, even after the medical exam is done and the legal component is done, this is trauma, and it's something that people a lot of times need some help and support with for a little while to overcome and heal from it. So we can provide those services regardless or you know, whether or not they want to proceed with any kind of legal charges. But the important thing really is just that they get the support that they need. Mm-hmm. And if the event that caused the trauma happened before they knew about the Rising Center, can they still seek services from you? Absolutely. We get a lot of referrals actually from sometimes outpatient clinicians who see somebody and they're coming in. Sometimes it's childhood or something that's happened a few years before, but it's showing back up for them because that's how trauma works. If if you haven't dealt with it, sometimes even if you have, it comes back up and it can be triggered by so many things that we are there to help them. Um, we have we have clinicians. There are eight counties that we offer services to because we're with the Kentucky River Area District. So that means that we provide services to Leslie, Knott, Letcher, Perry, Wolf, Breathitt, Lee, and Owsley counties. And we have clinicians that can be accessed close to that county. So in Owsley County example, we don't have a clinician there, but we have one in Lee County and Wolf County and all of the counties surrounding it. So they can get those services locally wherever they're at. Okay. So, for example, if someone has been assaulted and it's right after they know they've been assaulted, they know they need to do something, um, they want to do something, what do they do? Well, we would encourage you to call and talk to us if you want to so that we can walk you through the process. A lot of people just kind of show up at the hospital. and That's totally fine because the hospital will call us and we will come out to the hospital to meet with them. The thing that I love about what we do is that we are able to give them information about what's going to happen. Because if this has never happened to you and you've never known anybody it's happened to, you don't know anything about what the safe exam is like. You don't know anything about what choices you have as to whether to report it or not. So we are at that point going to come out and meet with them in the hospital or they can call us at our 24-hour hotline and we'll talk to them over the phone to let them know what their choices are. You know, per statute, you have 96 hours to do the SAFE exam, which is basically just the sexual assault forensic medical examination, where they collect evidence to potentially be used to seek justice. Um, So you have 96 hours. It's a lot longer than you would think it would be. So even if it happened yesterday, there's you have some time to think about it. And I think that's something that we we get missed sometimes, too, that people, you know, it may have happened yesterday or maybe even the day before, and you don't know that that's still an option for you to have that done. Um, So I think sometimes people don't know that they can contact us, even if it's been a couple days ago. Um, Right. But after that, what, 96 hours, then there are things that could be lost that would give crucial information. Yes. And And, of course, better evidence is collected closer to after the assault has taken place so if you know immediately after it's happened is really the best time to show up show up but sometimes sometimes people have to process kind of what's happened to them before they're ready for that um so they can call us immediately and we are there 24 hours seven days a week to talk to them and kind of help them through the process i know some um people their first reaction is to take a shower is that okay 
some evidence is lost when you do that. So, of course, we always encourage people not to do that until afterwards because that's, you know, it's just going to compromise what they're going to be able to get off the exam. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard. I know that's so hard for people to to think about kind of postponing that, but it, it really does compromise what we're able to collect when they do the, the safe exam on them. Mm -hmm. So there is a crisis line. Um, as you said, you serve eight counties. So if you don't know the number um, that you should call, it is a 1-800 number, so it would be no cost to you. And the crisis line is 1-800-375-7272. And you can also find the Rising Center on the web at www.therisingcenter.org. And you can also like them on Facebook, and they're just under the Rising Center. And the office is located in Hazard, correct? Yes. So where in Hazard? We're on Morton Boulevard. We're on the hill up by where ARH is at. Um, you kind of got the medical plaza, and then there's the psychiatric center. And then right after that, there's this little building that has our tree logo on it. We're right across. There's like a Yamaha Polaris shop right across from us mm -hmm. on the road. But they don't have to go to Hazard ARH Hospital to no. receive. No, we all of the hospitals in our eight counties we respond to. Um, okay. So whether that's Mary Breckenridge or KRMC in Jackson, we we can come there to you, okay. wherever's closest for the survivor to go. Right. And you've used the word advocacy several times. What does that mean? What is advocacy? Advocacy is one of the most, which I kind of feel that way about everything, <laughs> but it's one of the most important things that we offer in our program. There are really kind of two forms that that takes on. There's a medical piece that's just where they're going out to the hospital and kind of helping the survivor know again about the safe exam, what all's involved in it, and just kind of being their voice. It's intimidating. If you choose to contact law enforcement, you know, somebody from the state police is going to show up and you've got all of the medical personnel who are kind of managing the ER, throwing all these questions at you. So they're able to really advocate for the person in that moment and help them find their voice of what they want to happen. Legal advocacy is, of course, helping them pursue justice. Um, if they are going through the court process, they're there to meet with them, not just in the courtroom, but meet with, you know, Commonwealth attorneys and those kinds of things to just kind of give them that extra bit of support, helping them get DVOs or IPOs, protective orders, when they're needed, just helping them navigate that process to protect themselves and seek justice. So that they aren't doing it alone. Abso right? Absolutely. And don't have to wonder what the next step is. Yeah. Because how do you how do you know if if you aren't working in the system? How do you know how to get a protective order or even what you have to do to qualify? So there are lots of things that our advocates know. It's the knowledge and it's the presence of being there. Mm -hmm. It's intimidating to have to go into court and say this happened to me, so I need some some protection. To have someone that can go with you, that can be there to support you and help you know what you need to do step by step. It's vital. It's absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. Lots of times when I've seen, you know, kind of hearing what advocates have done throughout the day and kind of staffing cases, that I, there are times when I know that survivor would not have got that protective order or, or would not have continued with that case if it was not for somebody to stand behind them and help them through it. Because mm -hmm. it's scary. It is. And, and it's not always met with the best um, response or a response that is sympathetic enough or even empathetic enough maybe the other word because you call for example the um, county clerk or whatever you need to get an EPO and you say that you need one they may respond to you very dryly when you're very emotional because it's something they're doing every day they've heard every story and above and beyond and they don't respond in the way that you feel that they should and then suddenly you feel intimidated or you feel embarrassed which may not be warranted at all they may not be rude or they may yeah. not have but sometimes just having someone there as another face for you and another filter for you to process this through um is a is a huge ordeal huge deal yeah 
and, and just like you were saying, even if it's not intentional, just having the strength after something like this has happened to you to go in and seek that is a big deal. So if you're met with anything, you know, it's four o'clock on a Friday and they're getting ready to close down shop, you know, and they're kind of tired. Even just that reaction can be enough to dissuade someone from going forward. And that's why I really just think that it's one of the most vital services that we offer. And our advocates are everywhere. I mean, they go into all different areas of the community. A big part of what they do is raise awareness. Um, one of the things that we are starting to work on right now that Jennifer Riley, our, our advocate for these areas, for these counties down here in the South, is working on going into the jails and prisons. Um, Prison Rape Elimination Act is a federal act that requires there to be awareness and education in jails, prisons, institutions, because there's so much of that that occurs in prison populations. Trying to help people be aware of what they need to be looking for, how they can prevent it, what they need to do when it's happening. Um, she actually wanted me to give a shout out to Don McCall in Letcher County Jail because he's been allowing her to go there, I think, every every week and getting some awareness out into the jail, which is awesome. We appreciate that because that's hopefully what our other jails will start to do. <laughs> um, so you see them everywhere. They, they can go into any community, any, any, any part of this area to advocate for someone. It's not just limited to... We talk a lot about hospitals and those kinds of things, but they're showing up advocating for clients in trainings. You know, they're working with law enforcement and doing trainings with community partners to make them aware of how this is a problem. And again, we're we're really just trying to be an agent of change. We try to do that on every front that we possibly can. And how um, welcoming do you feel the community is of an advocate for a sexual assault victim? or someone who's just wanting to raise awareness, are people welcoming that into, like you said, the jails or um, church groups or schools even? How, how does that go? I think that there's some hesitancy to talk about it in some situations, but our advocates are really good about opening up that dialogue in a way that people listen to them. Um, we have really skilled advocates. They can go into even the most, you know, and situations that might not really be willing to, to think about that or talk about that and they can really open up a dialogue with them. Um, there is some hesitation that we get sometimes just because we're talking about sexual assault and just the nature of talking about that is uncomfortable mm-hmm. and there is some resistance that we get at some levels um, but that's why it's a movement. That's why we are trying to be part of an anti-rape movement mm-hmm. is because there's resistance on the cultural level and we're prepared with that. We know we got to deal with that. And so what would you say to someone who may be resistant, who may know that this information is needed where they work or this information is needed at their jail or their school, but they're resistant to open that dialogue? What would you say to them? I would say call us because that's a part of what we're here to do too is education and outreach. We are more than welcome to come out and do presentations or open up that dialogue wherever it's needed because we want this to be a community-based change. We really want people to be able to talk about it and be able to work together to figure out what we need to do to combat the problem. So we um, we do in-services, we do educations and trainings all the time, funded for different community partners. They just need to give us a call. It's absolutely something that we can help them with. So it is 634, and you are listening to WMMT 88.7. We're Real Stories, Real News, Real People Radio, and this is Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and I'm here with the director of the Rising Center, Holly Combs, and we are discussing Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which is the entire month of April, and we're talking about some of the really remarkable services that we have in our communities um, that the Rising Center provides including counseling, advocacy, um, step-by-step advocacy through the entire process of finding healing and if you decide to pursue justice, um, step-by-step, what to do. Um, They're going to be right there with you. And they do have a crisis line. So even if this has been something that happened weeks ago, months ago, 
they will still offer you their services where applicable. So you can call their crisis line. It's 1-800-375-7273. And this is a 24-hour, seven days a week hotline. So it doesn't matter what time you make the decision. When you make the decision, go ahead and pick up the phone. Someone will be there to talk with you. And you can see more about what they do on Facebook at therisingcenter.org. And the website is www.therisingcenter.org. So we were talking about advocacy and that you have advocates and um, that you're willing to do trainings and things like that. So do you accept volunteer services? Yes, we do. And that is actually something we are in desperate need of at present because we are a 24-7 hour program and it takes a lot of manpower for us to be able to respond in all eight counties, you know, in that time frame. Um, our volunteer program is something that is offered to anybody over the age of 21. The only other requirements are that they have to be able to pass a background check and a TB skin test. And all of those screenings are provided to them at KRCC cost because the Rising Center, we're associated with KRCC. We're under their umbrella and they kind of will, you know, back the front of the cost of that background check to get somebody in as a volunteer. Um, we provide them all the training that they need so that they can feel equipped to manage whatever role they want to take on as a volunteer. We use volunteers a lot at our events, and that's something that I think people can get excited about getting out and raising awareness. They're able to participate in that, and a lot of our volunteers really love, especially this month of April where we're getting out in the community and doing so much. But where we really need people is in our response to the hospitals. Volunteers are absolutely the backbone of what we do. We train volunteers to be able to go out and be advocates for clients in that hospital setting. We make them aware of all the choices that survivors have. We give them training and support. Our advocates are on call themselves 24-7 to respond, but we we try to let volunteers do it first. Um, That way we can respond in kind of specialized cases with children or um, like if it's a a prison or inmate situation, we have to respond. Um, But It's really a lot more fulfilling than people kind of think. And I know, like, anytime we talk about volunteering or putting yourself on an on-call schedule, that seems daunting. But this is a chance to to experience something that's so much more rewarding than people understand until they're doing it. To be with somebody at a time when they've just kind of lost sometimes hope in their voice. To be able to be there with them at that dark time. Give them a voice back. Give them some empowerment. It's just a very rewarding thing to be able to do. Um, So that is something we're doing is seeking volunteers to build that program Mm -hmm. right now. And do you accept both male and female volunteers? Absolutely, we do, yes. Okay, great. And um, do males work with females and females work with males? Does it matter who you send out or how does that work? Right now, most of what we have are females, and we try to keep it, the same gender just because sometimes, but it depends on what the person is comfortable with. Um, If it's a female, a lot of times the female responding kind of goes over a little bit better because they're able to relate to them a little bit more and feel more comfortable to them. We do need some males because there are male calls and we need males to go out and respond to that. Um, So yeah, we we need both. Yeah. It doesn't matter the gender. We need both. (laughs) Okay, great. That's good to know. Um, So you mentioned also children, and when we think of crisis hotlines and we think of services like that, um, we don't typically think of children as the first, um, I guess, client (laughs) um, for these services. But, you know, some, some of these children may not be able to make the call for themselves, so what does that mean? A parent or a caregiver has to make the call. And I could just imagine how intimidating that would be. So let's talk about that. What happens if you are a parent or a caregiver or an aunt or an uncle or a sister or a brother and you feel you need to be the voice for a child? Oh, absolutely, Collis. Our advocates work 
through, you know, because it is a, if it's a child and they're under the age where they can kind of consent for treatment, we have to provide those services through the parent. But it is something that happens a lot more than we would think it ever should, just like all sexual assault. Um, and they do need a voice. They need somebody to kind of stand in their corner. So even though we're working through the guardian, we're really working through the guardian on their behalf. And trying to help them, you know, because even as a child, they have some thoughts about what needs to happen. And they need somebody to kind of help them maneuver that just like we do. And even more, to be honest, they need even more support. Mm -hmm. So, yes, please contact us because we can offer the same services um, to children that we do for adults. Mm -hmm. And what I could imagine um, some parents feeling is, is it automatically going to be that my child is taken from me because this has happened to them and I need to get them services, but I'm afraid? How how does that look for a parent? Yeah, and, and I agree that that's probably one of the biggest things that keeps people. Part of that is because probably the first thing we do as a parent is think, what could I have done to protect them? And again, it gets back to sexual assault happens a lot, and there isn't anything that we can do to prevent that from happening. Um, so whenever they call, we're not kind of coming to police them. Now, of course, if there's any kind of abuse or neglect that's happened, then that's a separate issue. But that's not something that we're going into it looking for. You know, we're there to try to help this child in response to the sexual assault that's happened, help them get the services they need. And, and a lot of times, you know, if it's a minor, that is something that it's an automatic report. We have to, in the state of Kentucky, they have to be made aware. Law enforcement gets involved. They do an investigation because it is a minor. And they have special protection that really needs to be afforded to them. But it isn't a case where, you know, you call and automatically because this happened to your kids, you're the parent, it's your fault. That's not at all how it plays out. Um, they need to know that, just like in the case of adults, these are things that happen. I mean, we cannot control as parents. And that's what's scary, I think, especially for me, especially for any parent. That's what's scary about this topic is that we can't prevent it from happening. We do the best we can to protect our children. But this is just something that perpetrators are really good at taking advantage of any situation. Um, and that's something that we have to work a lot of times with the parents on. They have what we call secondary trauma, where they're blaming themselves and ruminating about what they could have, should have done. And we have to help them work through and being able to kind of forgive themselves for things that weren't their fault because it wasn't. Right. So do you also offer counseling to friends of victims and family members of yeah, victims? Absolutely. Anybody, And that can permeate. It isn't just parents. Like you said, it can be family members. It can be a sister or a brother. When we are close to someone and this happens to them, just the care and concern that we have for them can cause us to have some of those similar trauma symptoms ourselves. You know, we can't sleep. We can't stop thinking about it. And they need that support just like what we call the primary victim does. Mm -hmm. And so you've mentioned the word right culture a number of times. Um, and we hear that word used really often or those two words, um, phrase, but I don't think we understand exactly what that means because this culture is continuing to be perpetuated and supported. Yes. So I think without it being clearly defined, what exactly does that look like? We don't know what to do to change it. So let's talk about, um, for just a minute, some things that may support a rape culture and things that we may need to second guess or question. A big part of rape culture is just victim blaming, and it can take so many different forms. Sometimes it's as overt as, well, she was drinking, you know, she shouldn't have been out partying, it. and that's kind of something that people will be talking about in a circle and everybody's a part of that conversation. That's rape culture. Sometimes it's more covert than that. It's more, it's kind of offhand comments about things that the person did that might have held make them responsible or issues about consent is a big part of rape culture. We don't understand that you have to have verified consent. You cannot just assume that because you're there that you have the consent for it to take place. So really when we talk about rape culture, what we're talking about are those perceptions that are perpetuating not just that rape happened, 
but how we react to the rape. So what I mean by that is when somebody experiences a sexual assault, one of the things that is so scary for them is knowing that when they come out and start talking about this, first of all, are they going to be believed? And that's a big part of rape culture. We don't believe it even happened most of the time. And if they are believed, is somebody going to start blaming them for what happened and all the different ways that that happens? Those are the things that prevent them from being able sometimes to even just say that it happened, let alone be able to overcome and work through what's happened. So rape, rape culture is something that we see all around us. It's the jokes that we hear when we're out talking to somebody, or it's the things that are said in response to assault. And these are things we see on social media. You know, you see something break in a big headline of a rape or sexual assault that happened, and you can just look in the comments and see how pervasive that victim blaming is in our culture. Mm-hmm. Or even some of the means I've noticed objectifying a woman's body. Yes. Um, or another thing that really gets me as a mother who breastfed her children is the fact that they want you to go to a restroom to do that when you really for most women you can't see much at all and you may not even notice that the person's doing that Um, but I'll never forget in Speak Your Peace um, which is in the Whitesburg Mountain Eagle one one time somebody said to that lady who was breastfeeding her toddler in Hardee's my husband couldn't stop looking at you and then she blaming a mother for breastfeeding when the the husband couldn't stop looking. Mm -hmm. And to me, the first thing that got in my mind is I would be asking him a lot of questions because if that was something he had to stare at, he should be accountable. Absolutely. He should be accountable because he's the one that's got the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is rape culture personified. It's blaming the victim instead of us looking at the real issue, Mm -hmm. which is what's going on with the person who's not just doing the rape, Mm -hmm. but staring at that woman inappropriately or making these inappropriate jokes about her. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to initiate change. Exactly. And I, another thing that gets me too is, um, sexualizing the body so much when every part from genitalia all the way to your lips that is used in a sexual encounter is a multifunctional organ it doesn't just it's not just used for sex and so just seeing that as a sexual piece of the body um, or looking for example as breast as just a sexual piece of the body, and if that was the case, likely men would have them too. So the first thing is to feed, therefore, is to feed our children and to show that we are capable of feeding our children. And there's nothing more beautiful Mm -hmm. than that bond of of being able to experience that with your Mm -hmm. child. It's so heartbreaking when they get to the point where they don't need that anymore. Right, right. (laughs) Because it's a special connection, And, and it's a beautiful thing that we've turned into something you know, people, it's a beautiful thing that people will say isn't beautiful. They'll deny the beauty in it because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the difference between the idea of modesty and being ashamed of your body. Yes. Those are two different things. There are some people that are modest because they're ashamed of their body um, or seeing the human body not as a wonderful work of art. That's pretty amazing and very wonderful when you think of its scientific function. But just as the sexual object, anytime you see a nude person, yeah, um, rather than a functional, wonderful body. Um, so I think those are things. And even like putting on red lipstick. Yeah. You know, some people would say that that meant that she was asking for it. You know, just because she liked the way she looked in red lipstick. Um, Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense to me why we continue with those thoughts. And I think that's where we have the opportunity to intervene on a personal level Mm -hmm. to be able to step in and say something when those things are being said around us. Mm -hmm. And some of it is, like you said, it's borderline. I mean, I hate to use the word ridiculous, but just the thought process that's going in that of how they Mm -hmm. they blame somebody. Mm -hmm. Like you said, lipstick. I mean, people wear lipstick all the time. (laughs) That isn't something that you're signaling something with. 
just like to put on makeup because it makes us feel good, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Or the difference between, for example, if a girl's sexual life involves multiple partners by her choice mm-hmm. and she becomes sexually assaulted, a lot of times you see the back blame, but then you see the difference between a group of males, boys will be boys. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Boys will be boys. You've just got to realize they're boys. And that is the number one thing when we talk about rape culture. That's one of that we've got to counteract that. We hear that all the time. And it is not okay. It is not okay for us just to say, oh, it's okay for him to be doing that because he's a boy. That's the whole problem. Mm-hmm. It's not okay. We need to be teaching that it's not okay. And that's not the case. In supporting that, you're actually teaching them to exude that behavior in order to show their maleness. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the way boys act, so I have to act this way even if I don't want to. Yes, it becomes part of the male identity, which is, Mm -hmm. again, exactly what we're talking about in rape culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I know we've, and one of the memes that I saw on the Rising Center's Facebook page was, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. Um, And sometimes I know when we've suffered trauma, it doesn't feel like we're surviving at all. Um, And sometimes it can get really overwhelming to where it feels like another breath is too hard. Um, If you are at that point and you don't know if surviving even sounds good, what, what do you do then? Well, first of all, it's okay to be at that point because it's part of one of the things that I love about this work. And it's hard work. It's hard to see this kind of pain and and be around it. But what is amazing in this is that you see people at what to me is one of the darkest moments that somebody can be in. And you see how strong somebody can be. I almost get emotional when I think about it because it's, it's amazing to see the strength that it takes to overcome sexual assault and the impact of it. And it's okay to be at that place where you feel like you're on the bottom and you don't see yourself as a survivor. That's one of the reasons that we want you to call us so that we can talk to you and reinforce and validate and encourage you and let you see just the fact that you're still here Just the fact that you're kind of making it day by day is taking a lot more than you think that it is. It's taking a lot more strength than you're giving yourself credit for. And we want to be able to foster that voice and help people to see and give themselves credit for what they are doing to get through it. Because just to breathe is a big deal. Just to get up and go through that day is a big deal when you're overcoming something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Some people, when they tell their story, they talk about how there's this kind of journey from being a victim to being a survivor, that they kind of have to, you know, they see themselves in this light for a while, and then they can gradually see themselves getting stronger and get to a place where they can take ownership as a survivor. Some people can identify with that readily right off the bat. I'm going to be a survivor. So it's individualized, and it's okay however you're going to go through that. We just want you to know that there is support for you. And it doesn't mean that you're weaker or stronger than the next person. No. Um, Everything happens differently. And each of these instances are different and unique. Yes. And the way you experienced it is the way you experienced it. And I think that is important to know. It is. And not to play anything down because you feel like you're whining or like you should be stronger or because you wonder sometimes why it happened to you and if there was something you could have done to prevent it. Those those are where I think we get caught in being a victim Mm -hmm. is the um, self-talk that keeps us there. And that's another reason why I think what the services you are providing, especially in the counseling Mm -hmm. and the post-trauma counseling, is very unique and and worthwhile to seek. Do you see a lot of um, survivors becoming volunteers for the Rising Center? We do. A lot of sometimes a lot of the volunteers that we have do come through the program because they do want to give back, Um, and especially in a lot of the event work that we do. They, they really want to be out there kind of raising awareness. Um, and for some, you know, for some people, 
again, it gets kind of individualized. Some people get into it because somebody that they know has happened to them. But we do see a lot of survivors that it's a way of kind of them getting their voice back, right. being able to, to get out there and raise awareness. Mm-hmm. And so if someone wants to be a volunteer, they can call your main office, right? Yes, please, please call us. And yes. that number is? Okay, it is 1606 435 Okay. And what are the hours of the office? We are there 8 to 4.30 every day. But as we said, the crisis line is 24 hours, seven days a week. And so the 1-800 number is how you would reach them if if you need help. And that number is 1-800-375-7273. And you'll also find that on their website. It's www.therisingcenter.org. And you are listening to WMMT Mountain Talk Monday. I'm Kelly Haywood, and I'm here with the director of the Rising Center, Holly Combs. And we have about five minutes left in our show, Holly. And I was wondering if there's anything else that you would like to share in this time that we haven't discussed yet. Okay. Um, One of the big things that I wanted to do is just where you've kind of given us the opportunity to to advocate or ask for some volunteers because we do really need some people to go out into the hospitals. Um, So absolutely, if you are interested at all, if this sounds like something that you would maybe even think about wanting to do, give us a call. Um, It's not something like when you sign up, you have to do either. You know, we can do some training and help you see if it's something that does fit with what you feel comfortable doing. And we can use at volunteers in any different avenue that we that we kind of pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be seeing a lot of us if you follow us on Facebook this month because it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. We're going to be getting a lot of kind of materials out into the community. We're doing a Chalk the Walk event on March the 18th where we're going to be at the local college campuses, kind of letting them, um, letting the students get involved in raising awareness. Is that April 18th? Oh, yeah. Sorry. April. That's okay. See, my brain is still in March. You're right. April 18th. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. not. I mean, it's just the 4th. Yes. <laughs> my brain has not transferred over to April yet. Right. Um, and... I mean, we're always here. I mean, I know it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so we're getting out there a lot and our voices heard a little bit more, but we're always here. We don't close up shop at the end of April and kind of go away. We're we're here 24 hours, seven days a week. And if you even have a question, you can call us anonymously. You don't have to give us a name when you call our 1-800 number. I think that's important for people to know that it's confidential. They can call and just talk through some things, and we don't even have to know who they are. Absolutely. That's really important as a first step, and that might give you the ability to check out what it's going to sound like when you start talking to someone, and then maybe later you can call back and give your name and actually receive those in-person services. So there's there's a right way for you to access the help you need. You don't have to be alone. Um, you don't have to think that you have to endure this just because it happened to you. Um, I'm really grateful that we have the Rising Center here today and that we're able to share the services that they offer. Um, One thing I wanted to ask is I've worked in birth advocacy where there's also um, a lot of crossover here because with so many women having experienced sexual traumas, that affects the way we give birth. Um, Because really you're opening up your body, you're turning your body over to the birth of the baby. And sometimes that can feel very triggering for women. And um, and being able, that's one of the biggest fears we see in birth. And as someone who went to hospitals as a doula and sat with women, I know too from a volunteer kind of standpoint, sometimes it can trigger things in you. Or seeing someone process their own trauma can kind of be traumatizing. So when you have volunteers who are working in this capacity with trauma, do you also offer them post-counseling? We give them absolutely any and all support that they need. And we we encourage, we do a check-in with people too to kind of make sure that it isn't becoming too traumatic for them. It's something that we have to keep a really close eye on. Even with ourselves, we have to use self-care and make sure it isn't becoming too triggering or overwhelming for us. So that's something that we're very aware aware of and mindful of throughout the entire process. And it's okay if a volunteer kind of starts with us and then it becomes too triggering for them and they need to kind of step out of that role. Maybe they just want to do events. We'll kind of meet them wherever they're at and whatever capacity is healthy for them Mm -hmm. to be able to help. 
you need volunteers in all ways. Yes. So it's really no less of a help Absolutely. either way. Great. Absolutely. So we really appreciate you being here today. Is there any final words you have for our audience? I don't think so. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to come out and just kind of talk about this topic and let everybody know that we're here and what we can do to try to help them. It's been wonderful, and I'm glad that we could help you all get the word out and talk about this topic that so often is just kept kind of under the rug. Um, I think the more we talk about it, the easier it will become to talk about it and easier for women and men who have suffered this to get the help that they need um, because it is too common for us not to be getting the help that we need and knowing what we can do to support one another. So I appreciate that a great deal. And we did record the show tonight, so we will have it online, and um, WMMT will will share the recording, and I'm sure the Rising Center um, will as well if you need to hear it again. Again, the crisis line number is 1-800-375-7273, and you can find them at www.therisingcenter.com. and on Facebook if you just search the Rising Center. And they are located in Hazard, Kentucky, but they do service eight counties in the region. So you do not have to be in Hazard to obtain the services. So um, thank you, Holly, for joining us. And that will be it for this Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. You've been listening to Real Stories, Real News, Real People Radio, Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT 88.7 FM.